Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 14 through 24. The word of God speaks to us. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, baby. I, uh, I have to always preface, I don't say that to every person who reads scripture. <laughs> People are like, this is a really loving church. Just, I just say that to the one I'm married to. Hey, uh, good morning, guys. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. It is, uh, it's really good to have you. If you are uh, new to this church or maybe you're new to church in general or back into church after being out for a while... Uh, man, that can be a really intimidating process to try to find a church, especially in Oklahoma, where there's churches on almost every corner and lots of different variety and lots of different baggage and lots of different stories. I just want to say, whatever it is that you're carrying in the room, we are glad that you're here. We do not pretend to know everything. We don't think that we have all the answers. Uh, we're not trying to sell you anything. We really do believe that we have good news. We really do believe that Jesus changes everything. And uh, we just want to invite you in. Come in and be well and wrestle with the claims that Jesus makes, the claims that we're going to be studying in Scripture uh, on Sundays and throughout the week in community groups. So we're really glad that you're here. It's good to see you. Uh, happy Halloween. I see some people in, in outfits already. Happy Halloween. Uh, for those of you nerds, happy Reformation Day. Uh, all of that is counts. We're stoked about everything that's happening this weekend. Um, hey, we had a great time over the weekend. Uh, all the, the, the men got together, about 45 of us, 
from Frontline South to go camping in the Wichita Mountains. Yes, Oklahoma has mountains. It's called the Wichita Mountains, and uh, they're big hills. They're really pretty. And we went camping there and had a great time until we got rained out on Saturday morning. So other than that, it was awesome. Uh, but thank you guys for, for uh, ladies giving up your husbands and guys for making that a priority to come out. is really fun. So glad that you were there. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm excited about today, but I do want to give you a preface. This is weighty. This is heavy. If you're like, I thought yesterday's uh, game was super depressing. Well, this will be more depressing. So with that preface, let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to gather with the church, and uh, thank you that even on a cold day where it's easy just to let the cold kind of stick to us on a, almost on a, on a spiritual level where we come in with cold hearts, God, we pray that today you would warm us with the fire of your word and with the truth of scripture and with the presence of Jesus today. God, we pray that through the power of the spirit, you would take truth in Genesis 3 and shape our vision shape our understanding of the world based on your word. I just confess, there's so much of my vision of the world that's shaped by other things. And I, I pray today, you would adjust us, you would correct us, you would help us. And we pray today as we study the curse of sin, that you would give us a hatred for sin. As we talk about the, the attack of the enemy on creation, we pray that you would give us an awareness of the enemy. And we pray today that you would most of all give us an awareness of the work of Jesus Christ to come and to, to rescue and to redeem. And for my friends that are not sure what they think about that, uh, that have not yet repented of sin and followed you, we pray today that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith. So come and move, Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the things I think about a lot is the power that humanity has the potential that humanity has for both profound beauty and simultaneously for profound brokenness. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about the, the amazing ability that humans have to do good and also to do evil? Like, Let me just give you a few examples of humanity's potential for beauty. I think about art, and it's easy when you think about art to picture this. Michelangelo's work in the Sistine Chapel frescoes, unbelievable, isn't it, that someone had the artistic, creative ability by God to, to do something like that. That's unbelievable. Or I think about architecture, and Frank Lloyd Wright, who is one of the, the most famous architects to come out of the United States, has designed a lot of impressive, amazing houses. This is one of my favorites. It's called the Falling Water House, and he was known for not wanting to ruin the creation around whatever house he was building, but to integrate whatever the, the atmosphere of that area was like into the house itself. It's pretty amazing. I think about music, and <laughs> while I'm prepping sermons, and when I need to read or I want to listen to beautiful music, Yo-Yo Ma is always on the list for me. Just incredible that at a young age, this man devoted himself to studying and learning the cello and is now arguably the greatest cellist to ever live. He's unbelievable and his music is beautiful. You think, man, God gave us the capacity to create music. I think about technology. I remember as a young boy, I watched a, a movie or a documentary on Thomas Edison and it was incredible to watch this guy work so hard, countless hours over the course of years, recruiting the best minds of the day to figure out how do you create a light bulb. The fact that he even had that thought and then figured out how to do that. You could give me a thousand years and I could never figure out how to make a light bulb. 
And yet he did this not just with a light bulb, but with mass communication and sound recording and the motion picture camera and many, many other inventions that have literally changed modern society and provided some beautiful things. I think about the medical advancements that we have in our society. I mean, I don't know of anybody in this room who would trade our modern medical advancements for even what we had 20 years ago or or 50 years ago. I mean, we're literally living in the best time there is to live in terms of medical advancements. And then finally, I think about life itself, the gift of life itself. I remember when my wife and I uh, had our first child, and I was just blown away, like the whole process As bizarre and amazing as it is, it's breathtaking, isn't it, that two humans can create another human. It's just incredible. It's it's mind-blowing that God gave us such potential. Friends, you and I, we are made in God's image and likeness. And that means a lot of things. That means that we represent him and we, 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 we're supposed to rule the way that he would rule. But, but, it, but one of the things that it means is that we've been given unbelievable gifts and power and potential to do some powerful, beautiful things in the world. But there's a dark side to this. The dark side is that that same potential and power that we have for beauty can also be unleashed on our world to do brokenness and corruption. I think about the ways that we neglect the earth and pollute it. You know, I I remember uh, driving down the highway with a buddy years ago, and he rolled down his window. He had a big gulp, just chunked it out the highway. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, ah, God's going to burn this place up anyway in the end. doesn't really matter. And it's his vision of the world was, no, we're not here to represent God. We're not here to rule this thing. God's going to destroy it anyway in the end, so why does it matter how we take care of it? I think about the hatred and divisions that get naturally birthed in the hearts of people between other people mainly based on culture or color of skin or differences. And I know this is in our history, but there's also things in our present, as we know, where there's just this natural skepticism. And I would argue that now, even with all of our talk about equality and you know reconciliation and all of that, there's actually just more hatred and divisions that exist among people. I think about our greed and our selfishness. This is a photo of Mumbai, India, uh, where some dear friends of mine live. And in Mumbai, India, it's fascinating. There are 119 billionaires, 119 B billionaires. It's unbelievable. In fact, every day in India, around 70 new millionaires are produced. And what's crazy is the richest of the richest of the rich in Mumbai, India, live literally feet away from the poorest of the poor, which this photo shows, the slums of Mumbai. They're separated by a giant wall, and you have people in the slums that make on average $500 to $2,000 in a whole year. What some of you make in a paycheck, they make over the course of an entire year, and they live next to billionaires. And you just think, like, man, the problem with global hunger and poverty, like, this could be solved but we don't want to. It requires too much effort and work and generosity on our part. Or I think about how technology can go wrong. And this photo has almost become old hat to us. It doesn't really produce any guttural reaction whatsoever. But we forget when we drop these two bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we forget that around 220,000 people died almost instantly like that. 
220,000 people. In fact, one of the bombs was dropped right on top of a Catholic monastery, killing a ton of nuns and other Christians that were there. And we just don't even think like how these amazing technological advances that we have the ability to create as humans can go awry and create unbelievable havoc and death. Or I think about other ways that the medical advancements of our society can go wrong, where instead of using medical advancements to create or protect life or, or keep people alive, we use it to surgically kill life. Or wars and violence that are unleashed and on the, the, the news headlines all across every single news channel all the time. And think what you will about this war, but it is absolutely horrific, horrific what Hamas has done. Horrific to take young infants and bash their heads against walls. To take elderly people hostage. To take students hostage. To fly in on motored vehicles and kill people brutally, rape people brutally in the name of whatever weird religion that they're trying to... This is horrible, horrible stuff that happens. And you even think about the recent shooting in Maine that happened just the other day where one man murdered 18 people. Just violence and destruction and evil. All of this potential, all of this raw power, all of this image-bearing capability that God has given us, and look at how we use it. Anthony Hokema says this, he says, What makes sin so serious is precisely the fact that man is now using God-given and God-imaging powers and gifts to do things that are an affront to his maker. Think about that, that we are using the things that God has given us meant to be rightly ordered towards him, and we've disordered them and used them for dysfunction and destruction. How did we get here? What went wrong in our society? Why is it that we have so much potential for good and yet so much potential for evil? And often evil is the thing that gets the upper hand. How did things go so wrong? And what is God doing to fix it, if anything? Well, the, the, the answer to all of those questions are here in Genesis chapter 3. They're all right here. And so with that in mind, I want to dig in and kind of unpack what's happening. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Chad Kinser, he's our teaching pastor downtown, one of my best friends, he, he preached an amazing sermon on the fall. It was weighty. So this is like weighty part two. And he, he basically talked about humanity's decision to rebel against God, to eat of this fruit of the, the forbidden tree. And that was not just grabbing fruit that God did not like. There's so much more at play there. That, that was them saying, we think the good life can be found outside of God. We think identity and meaning and purpose can be found outside of him. We want to become like God too. We want to define good and evil for, evil for ourselves. And we want to reject and resist God so that we can achieve this new status and do our own thing. And what I want to show you today in Genesis chapter 3 is the effects of that decision. What happened now in our world and in our relationships as a result of humanity's decision to sin? And if you're just needing like a, a where are you moment in Genesis chapter 3, if you're needing a reorientation to what's happening in our text today, I want you to look at the very first four questions that are ever asked in the Bible. They're all asked by God himself, and they are back to back to back revealing how desperate our condition is because of sin. Here's the first question in verse 9. Where are you? And this is not God asking a question of location. He knows where Adam is. This is God asking a question of relationship. Hey, where are you? Second question, who told you that you were naked? 
Verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And this last question is maybe the most devastating of all in verse 13. What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? Do you hear the heartbreak in the voice of God? Do you hear the tragedy there? What, what, what is this that you've done? You, you've broken something. You've ruined something. Because of your decision, everything is about to change. This is what's tied up inside of this verse. And the very first thing that we see changing is from this word blessed to this word cursed. If you read Genesis chapter 1 all the way through, you get this refrain of, and God blessed them, and God blessed it, and God blessed the animals, and he blessed the, the seventh day, and he made it holy. Blessed, 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 that God creates this world. He creates humanity. He creates all of these things, and he's blessing them with his presence. That fundamentally what it means to be human is for you and I to be oriented around the blessing of God. And yet for the very first time in Genesis chapter 3, a new word appears, and it's a devastating word. It's a sad word. It's the word cursed. For the first time, we go from blessing to reading about cursing. And I want to define this idea of cursing for you or the curse for you because I think it's often misunderstood. So here's just a working definition that I've created that hopefully will help you think about this. The curse is what happens when humanity rejects and resists God and his good intentions for our lives, and it results in his disfavor and his displeasure and in our dysfunction and destruction. It results in his disfavor and displeasure on us and our dysfunction and our destruction. Now, it's important to understand this because the curse is not God making our world bad. I think that's often how we think of the curse is that humanity did something that God didn't like, and so as a result, he makes everything bad. That's not the way it is. In fact, it's not even that God puts a hex on humanity as a result of our decision to do sin. That's not what's happening at the curse. The curse is God saying, hey, you want to reach out and be your own God? You want to cut me off and define good and evil for yourself? You want to go your own way and try to kill me and suppress me so that you can define what is right and wrong for yourselves? If you want to do that, here's the natural outworking of that decision. Here's where this is going to lead you, not to more life, but to death and dysfunction. And it's God's judgment on our world. The curse is what happens if a fish were to desire to live outside of water and reject its design in the ocean. It's what would happen if you ran your hand against a, a grain of wood the wrong way. The curse is, is, is us saying, God, we know that you've set up the world to work this way. You know, we know that you've created us for relationship with you. We are uninterested in all of that, and we'd rather rub our hand against the grain of the universe the wrong direction. That's what the curse is. It's both God's judgment on sin and the natural outworking and consequence for that sin. And here's what I want you to see. There's a lot of ways we could talk about this, but the way that I want you to see this play out in Genesis chapter 3 is I want you to think about the potential, the power of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be his image bearers, and how sin distorts that, how sin and the curse corrupts that, how sin comes in and inverts and profoundly disorders every single good gift that God has placed inside of us as his image bearers. John Calvin says it this way. He says, Therefore, even though we grant that God's image was not totally annihilated and destroyed at the fall, 
Yet it was so corrupted by sin, look at this, that whatever remains is frightful deformity. Every person in this room, me included, on an image-bearing level, yes, I'm still made in the image of God. Yes, you are still made in the image of God. But we have been frightfully deformed. In fact, Calvin goes on to describe this image as being deformed and vitiated and mutilated and maimed and disease-ridden and disfigured. And what I want you to see today is every good thing that God put inside of us, all these image-bearing capabilities that he's placed in us, we've inverted and distorted and disordered them on every single level. So with that in mind, let's go through four ways that the curse and sin play itself out in our world. Here's the first way, the curse and our relationship to God. I want you to notice how the curse comes in and distorts and disorders our relationship to God. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. By the way, that in any other scenario would be a result of great joy and delight. God's home. God's coming to walk in the garden with us. This is a good thing, right? Like kids running to the door of a good dad. That would have been the natural response. But notice what happens. And the man and his wife, what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Chad talked about this last week, but that word presence is better translated face of God. We were made, quorum Deo, to live before the very face of God. That's why we were made. And yet here, Adam and Eve, what are they doing? They're running and they're hiding their face from his face. And then we go on to read this in verse 9. But the Lord God, he called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Friends, this is the first and greatest effect of the, the curse of sin at the fall, is that our vertical relationship with God has been completely shattered and broken. That you and I, we were made for God, by God. We were made to live with God. We, we were made to find our identity inside of God. All of our life was supposed to be wrapped up in his life, and yet here we see something tragic where now we hide our very face from his face. And actually, God, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, he created the whole earth, not just to be a, 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 a rock flying in the, in the universe, but he created the earth to be a dwelling place for God and humanity, a, a cosmic temple where he would dwell with his people and his people would dwell with him in beauty and in love and in grace and in harmony and in peace. That's what you and I were made for. And yet here we are running and we are hiding from God because of our sin. In fact, our worship, our natural inclination to worship God has been disordered now. And instead of worshiping God and God alone, we suppress God and we begin to worship the things that God has made. We worship ourselves or we worship money or we worship success or we worship a relationship or we worship sexual ple pleasure or we worship a vacation or whatever it is. We, we look to other things to name us and define us rather than God. Our reason and our intellect has been inverted and distorted. Instead of using reason and intellect to think deeply about God, to think accurately about God, to think right thoughts about God, we actually use our intellect to praise ourselves and our own accomplishments and to think untrue things about God, to, to, to mentally think things that are, that are wrong and evil about his character. 
our inclination as image bearers to, to obey God gets inverted. And now, all of a sudden, we only obey ourselves and we, we are radically opposed to obeying him. Our speech gets, gets disordered. Instead of using our words to, to sing truth about God, to, to say accurate, beautiful, praiseworthy things about God, we use our speech to, to mock him or to belittle him or to accuse him or curse him or speak negatively about him. These bodies that he has made, these instruments of righteousness that he created to do good and worship and honor of him, now we've disordered and we've twisted and we use our very bodies to sin against him, to reject him, to rebel against him. And as Paul says, they become instruments of unrighteousness. Think about our morality, this, this inclination to, to drift towards what is right as opposed to what is wrong. Our morality gets profoundly disordered. And instead of building a world full of truth and in love and beauty, what happens now is we call wrong right and we call right wrong. And Paul says it this way in Romans 1, defining our human condition. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I love that he throws this one in here, disobedient to parents. He's like, they're murdering people and they don't obey their mom, right? It just covers all the, all the issues. Verse 31, they're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then look at this, the summary. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We don't just do the things that God said not to do, but we applaud the people who do things God said not to do. This is what's wrong with the human condition. Something has happened vertically, and our relationship with God has been totally disordered, and it's our fault, not his. And as a result, here's the response of God in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 23 says, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This line is painful. It says he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Friends, you were made for God. And here in Genesis chapter three, God is driving out humanity. His point is this. Humans are no longer good for the garden. They're no longer good for this garden. They're destructive. They're going to destroy everything that they touch. Humans are no longer good for this earth. They are full of evil. All of a sudden, now our relationship with God gets severed, and we are banished from his very presence. This is heavy, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there. That leads me to the second thing, which is not just the vertical reality of the curse, but the horizontal reality. Think about the curse and our relationship to humanity, our relationship to humanity. Why does racism exist? Why is there jealousy and envy and infighting? Why do people use their physical strength to kill and to steal and destroy and do things that are crimes against other people rather than blessing and protecting and building beautiful things? 
Why is it that wars break out among nations? Why is it that different countries have to arm themselves militarily in the event that someone might be pointing a nuclear bomb at us, so we're going to build some nuclear bombs to point at them just in case? Why is that? Why is that the way that things are? Well, the answer is right here in Genesis chapter 3. The, the, the curse of sin is now playing out, not just vertically, but horizontally with other people. It's like an atomic bomb that doesn't just affect our relationship with God, but it spills out over that. Now it affects our relationship with each other. And there's divisions and, and envy and brokenness in the human community. This is the result of sin. And you see the seed of this in Genesis chapter 3, and then you start to see it blossom in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills his brother Abel for no other reason then he was envious of his brother's righteousness. And then it grows into a full tree by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6 and you read this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Think about that. What, what do we read about the earth in Genesis chapter 1? It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6 it was corrupt, full of violence. What happened? Sin happened. And again, the image and purpose of God is profoundly distorted and disordered at every level. Think about this. You and I, friends, we were created for community. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, it is not good that man should be alone. That's not just a verse about marriage. That's a verse talking about God's intentions for humanity, that we serve a God who is in himself, in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that before anything existed, for all of eternity, God has been in covenantal, loving, beautiful, sacrificial relationship within himself. Father loving Son, Son loving Father, Holy Spirit moving in love and offering love back and forth between the Father and the Son. And God, out of love, created so that you and I could be brought into that dance of the Trinity, so that we could be brought into this community of love, this communion of love, and yet now this capacity for fellowship has been broken by sin. Instead of using our, our desire for community and, and to enrich the lives of other people, we actually use it to take advantage of other people. We use people for our own purposes. We see the world as a, as a story about me, and you're just you know bystanding actors in the story about me, and the world is my stage for me, and you only exist if you're going to help me. We see the world in broken ways where instead of craving good community, we crave indifference towards people or apathy towards people or even at times alienation towards people. And this is summed up really sadly in the French philosopher's words, Jean-Paul Sartre. He gave voice to this when he said, hell is other people. And if you would sit here in this room and say, yeah, I'm an introvert, hell is other people. And I get that like I'm actually an introvert too. I think pastoral ministry has turned me into one. I get, that. I get the, the desire and the need to, to be alone and that's actually good. There are times where we need to withdraw for communion with God so that we can actually engage communion with other people well. But when you are averse to humans, when you have no concern for the other person, when you don't care about your neighbor, that's not because God wired you that way. It's because sin has disordered you that way. Something is broken. Something went off. If hell is other people, that's more about sin than it is about God's design. Speech. 
Instead of using our words to bless others, to encourage them, to honor them, to build them up, to call out gospel greatness in them, we use our words and our speech to curse, to lie, to gossip, to share things about people's character that is not our business to share, to tear down. We create podcasts now just to talk about how much we hate people and how to cancel them and how to destroy them. This is our hobby as a culture, and it's more about sin than it is about God's good design. Sexual desires, instead of using our sexual desires that are good that God created us with in a rightly ordered way, we now become slaves to these desires and they become disordered in every way. Instead of sex being something that is, that is used as a blessing in the context of marriage between one man and, a, and one woman as this covenant of love is one of sacrifice and self-giving and concern and care, sex itself becomes something where I will turn other people into objects for me. And this gives rise to the porn culture, to sexual abuse, to prostitution, and a world of pain that if we went around and just shared stories of sexual brokenness and pain, we wouldn't leave this room for days. We wouldn't leave this room for days. Why is that there? It's there because of sin. It's broken us. It's ruined us. It's destroyed us in every single way. And now this connection that we have to the human community, it's not one of love. It's not one of concern. But Anthony Hokema again says this, man is still inescapably related to others. But instead of loving others, he's inclined to hate them. We cannot escape connection with other people, but often our connection to other people is to their detriment and harm, not to their good. Sadly, the curse of sin doesn't just affect our relationship with God, and it doesn't just affect our relationship with other people. It actually spills out to even the most intimate relationships. And that leads me to the, the third thing I want you to see, which is the curse and our relationship to marriage and childbearing. Now, I get that not everybody here is married, and that's totally okay, but I do want you to see how, in particular, there is a way that the curse even plays itself out in marriage and childbearing, these most intimate relationships between a man and a woman. In Genesis chapter 3, 16, it says this. It says, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's two particular inversions of sin here that are at play that I want you to see. The first one is to the woman, and he says there's going to be ch pain in childbearing. Now, growing up, I kind of thought that this just meant pre-fall, having babies wasn't painful at all. And post-fall, having babies is painful. And I'm not so sure about that anymore. But I can say, yeah, for sure that's a little bit of what this author is trying to tell us. But it's so much more than that. What is actually being said here is that the entire process of childbearing is now infused with, embedded into it, is anxiety and pain. And even as a pastor, thinking about the last 15 years of walking with people, I don't know two better words than what most moms feel on a fairly frequent basis than anxiety and pain when it comes to your children. Anxiety and pain. This is describing not just giving birth, but everything related to bringing a child into the world. The pain of not being able to conceive. There's some of you here that struggle with infertility and you don't even know how to talk about it. You, you don't even know. Every time someone in a friend or a family member gets pregnant, it's like another just sword inside of your soul. You don't even know how to describe the pain. But this is being talked about here in Genesis chapter 3. It's not just the pain of not being able to conceive. It's the pain of a miscarriage. 
If you've ever lost a baby, my wife and I had a miscarriage between our second and our third, and it's painful. It's hard. It's the pain of a stillborn child. It's the pain of an anxiety of getting pregnant and wondering, will my baby be okay? Will my baby be born healthy? It's the pain of seeing your child struggle with severe health issues or mental illness. We've got dear, sweet, amazing, godly people in our church that have children that have severe, broken bodies. And the pain that they now carry, the anxiety that they carry is real. It's the pain of a wayward child. And friends, listen, even if you give birth to a happy, healthy, normal, by the world standards, everything is fine baby, isn't it still full of anxiety and pain? In fact, one author said it this way. She said, making the decision to have a child, it is momentous. It is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside of your body. Parenting is many things, but peaceful is not one of them. And part of that is the curse of sin is entered into the most intimate of our relationships. But then the curse goes further than that. It talks about God's design for marriage and how the curse distorts that design for marriage. Look at what it says in verse 16, the second half of verse 16. It says, your desire, God to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now that That word contrary is a really strange translation. Most other translations, I think, get it better, a little bit more accurate to what this Hebrew word is trying to describe. The CSB translates it this way. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And this this could mean one of two things. Your desire will be for your husband could, could mean one of two things. The first thing it could mean is that your desire will be to subdue your husband. And we think this because in Genesis chapter 4, literally the next chapter, that same line shows up, but it's about the, the, the reality of sin with Cain. It says, hey, Cain, sin's desire is to rule over you or to subdue you, but you actually need to rule over it. So what, what's happening here is this could be talking about a, a wife's inclination, a wife's desire to rule over her husband, to oppress her husband, to, to rise up in authority and power over her husband, which does play out in our world. Or it could mean the other thing, which is your desire will be an idolatrous desire for your husband. In other words, you will look to your husband to be what only God can be for you, to name you, to, to give you meaning, to give you identity. You'll be, you'll be demanding that your husband holds up the mirror to tell you who you are when only that weight can be placed on the shoulders of God, not your husband. And if you were to say, well, which one do you think, Andrew? I would say both of them. I see both playing out in our world all over the place where you've got wives on one level who are either looking to their husbands to name them and define them or you've got wives who are seeking to subdue their husbands or they feel like their husbands are incompetent so they're wanting to rule over the husband. That is a distortion of what God intended marriage to be like. And it's not just with wives. Notice what God says about the brokenness of a man's role in marriage. Look at verse 16 again. He says, your desire will be for your husband, yet what? yet he will rule over you. Friends, that is not describing the heart of God for marriage. That is describing the natural outworking of sin. That instead of men and women in marriage being shoulder to shoulder as co-equal image bearers of God who have value and worth and dignity that is the same 
but, that, but yet they're, they're different in how they manifest the, the different roles that God has given them. What, what sin does is it causes men in marriage to do things that are evil and wrong and against his heart where they begin to rule over their wives. You were never created to rule over your wife. That's what sin does, and it continues to play itself out in exploitation and in competition and in idolatry and in strife and in a million other ways. And finally, the, the curse of sin, it doesn't stop there. As bad as all of that is, it expands even more. It gets worse even more. The picture becomes even more dark. And that's the fourth thing that I want you to see, which is the curse in our relationship to creation. The curse in our relationship to creation. Look at verse 17. It says, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice the emphasis here with humanity is not you are the image of God. It's you are dust. Now, he is the image of God, but something devastating is happening. And the reminder from God is, I brought you out of dust, and now because of sin, your, your destiny is back to dust, and death will come for you. But what I want you to notice specifically is how the curse doesn't just affect our relationship with God vertically. It doesn't just horizontally spill over into our relationships with humans in general or marriage or childbearing in particular, but it even touches the very ground with which we are standing on right now, that the curse affects this earth. Genesis 1 is a story of God spending incredible wisdom and beauty and power to rightly order a safe, hospitable world for humanity. We see God ordering and filling. We see him structuring this world and, and actually planting a garden that's full of fruit trees, full of beauty, full of life, because God's intention, God's desire, was that humanity would live in a beautiful, hospitable environment on this earth with him. And sin breaks all of that. Now we hear about thorns and thistles, we, we read about the ground itself and how it's waging war against humanity. How, yeah, we're still given the same task to work and keep, but as we seek to, to work and keep, it's waging war back on us. And now we have things that we call natural disasters, which, which Genesis would be appalled at. They're not natural. They're, they're unnatural. They're, they, they weren't designed to be in this good world. We've got tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and wildfires and and massive rainstorms that ruin our men's camping retreat, and, and other things that get in the way. It's like this, this world, you can tell at times, it's, just, it's like it's trying to kill us. It's trying to wage war against us. It's no longer a safe, hospitable environment. In fact, Derek Kidner says this about creation. He says, leaderless, the choir of creation can only grind on in discord. Leaderless, the choir of creation can only grind on in discord that humanity was created to rule over this earth in light of God's heart, with his generosity, with his wisdom. And yet now it's like we, we, we gave up the job. We failed. And this world is leaderless as it were. And that leads to maybe the most devastating part of this, 
that I want you to see. I know this is weighty. I know this is heavy, but you have to see this. If you're going to see what Jesus does as important at all, here's the reality. There's something even more terrifying and sad than all of these things. And it's the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, when they believed this great lie that the enemy fed them, they took the keys of the kingdom of God and they handed them over to the enemy. That they were created to be image bearers, to rule over this world. They had the keys of the kingdom, as it were. And when they sinned, remember the lie? If you do this, you'll become what? You'll become like God. The tragedy is that they were already like God in all the right ways. They were made in his image and likeness. And yet, because they believed this lie, it's like they, they, for, they, they handed over the keys of the kingdom to the enemy itself. And now this world, this world that we live in, is enemy-occupied territory. It's no longer ran by humans underneath the authority of God. It's now ran by the power of this world. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus describes the devil as the ruler of this world. And that theme carries on all throughout Scripture. In Acts 26... It describes people as walking in darkness underneath the power of Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4, it describes the devil as, quote, the God of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, it describes the devil as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. In Galatians 1, it talks about the power of this evil age. In Colossians, it talks about the rulers and authorities of this present age. In Hebrews chapter 2, it speaks of the devil as having the power of death and people being subject to lifelong slavery. In 1 John, it tells us that the whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And finally, in Revelation, it describes the devil as a great dragon who deceives the nations. Friends, the lie from the very beginning was you can be like God, and our enemy knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted to attack us at our image-bearing level from day one because he knew there's no other way to get to the heart of God like going after his kids. So he shows up in the garden, and he begins to lie. He begins to deceive. God's holding out on you. There's a better life out there somewhere. You don't need him. You can define good and evil for yourself. You can become like God. He gives all all of these lies, and I want you to see it, they in fact actually were lies. They were not true. The second they chose to sin, they, they forked over every bit of authority that God ever gave them. And the sad reality is that this enemy has been doing this ever since. And this part of the story often gets forgotten. I grew up in a really good church, but the church I grew up in sort of gave the story like this. Well, God created you good, and then you sinned, and you did bad things. And he still loves you, and he came and died for you so that you could be forgiven of your bad things. And then maybe one day, by his grace, you'll become better and not do as many bad things. And that was sort of the, the narrative as I heard it growing up. And it completely avoided the fact that we have an enemy who deceived, who lied, who tricked, who duped us. But friends, here's the actual story, is that yes, we did sin, but remember, we had an enemy come in and dupe us at every level. And it doesn't get us off the hook. It doesn't mean that we can blame the devil. It doesn't mean that it's his fault, not ours. But friends, what I want you to see is that Adam and Eve were, were deceived. They were lied to. Something tragic happened. That's why Christians call this the fall, because something tragic has occurred. And now everything is ruined because of these lies. And here's the question that we're left with. 
what is God going to do about it? What is God going to do about it? And that leads me to the last thing that I want you to see, which is the curse and the serpent crusher. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. By the way, that's not a comment about herbatology. That's not saying that, you know, snakes used to have legs like lizards, but now they don't because of it. That's not what's being described here. Remember, this is an ancient Near Eastern document written to people in that context. And often what was happening in other ancient Near Eastern documents is that serpents were seen as chaos monsters. They are often portrayed more like dragons than they were little snakes slithering on the ground. And so what God is doing here is he is coming against the serpent in judgment and saying, hey, this dragon who deceived, this dragon who duped you, who lied to you, well, guess what? He's going to be crawling around eating dust. That's like a judgment from God on this serpent. And then it goes on. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And look at this line. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first announcement, hint or shadow of the good news of the gospel that we have in the entire Bible. Right here in this verse, what God is saying is, hey, though you have deceived, though you have lied, though you have duped humanity into sin, there is coming a day where that woman is going to give birth to a son, and, and then eventually there's going to be a son who rises up, and he is going to crush your head. I've shown you a lot of photos today, and I've shown you this before, but one more photo to see. I love this picture, but this is a photo of Mary and Eve in the garden. And Eve here feeling the weight, the brokenness of her sin. Mary comforting Eve, pregnant with baby Jesus, her foot on the serpent. Hey, theologically, don't read too much into this. This is not saying that, that Mary's actually the serpent crusher. This is saying that the baby inside of her one day is going to rise up and he is going to crush the head of this one who lied to us, duped us, and helped us destroy everything. Friends, here's the good news of Christianity is that Christmas is a reality and Christmas is not nice or cute or sterilized or sentimental. Christmas is D-Day. Christmas is the day where God secretly invades behind enemy lines and he's saying, I am going to do war against this serpent. And through his life that was perfect, never giving into sin, never giving into the lies of the enemy in the 40 days in the wilderness, saying no, unlike Adam and Eve, to these temptations, staying faithful to God the Father, Jesus on the cross, he dies bearing the curse of our sin for us. And he rises again from the dead so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins and so that the serpent could be crushed under the head of Jesus. And get this, just like he drove Adam out of the garden, there is coming a day where Jesus is driving the curse out of this world. It, I love the song where it says, uh, he is going to make his blessings flow how far? As far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. So where's the curse found? He's going to make his blessing flow there. That's what Christianity is all about. Yes, we sinned. Yes, we ruined everything. Yes, we were duped and lied to and tricked. And yes, the enemy keeps doing that to people. But Jesus has come. He is the serpent crusher. And he will drive the curse out of this world. I want to invite you to stand with me. I want to ask you, 
Where in your life, where in your life is the curse of sin being felt today? Where in your life do you feel the curse of sin? Where do you feel the brokenness of sin? Where do you feel the pain of sin? Where do you feel in your marriage that things are not as they should be? Where do you feel in your body that things are broken? Where do you feel that things are not right in your relationships, with your kids, with your job, with depression, with anxiety, with all the things that you might be carrying with you today? Where are things not right? Where are things not well? Where is the curse being found? And I just want to remind you that Jesus really did come for all of those things. His body was broken for every bit of that, every bit of that. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you can come and remember today that the body of Jesus was broken, the blood of Jesus was shed so that he could absorb the curse in our place. And and there is coming a day where that's going to be driven out of our world. And so today we stand in hope, don't we? We stand in, 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 in longing for the day where Jesus will come and make all things new. And so I want to invite you today, if you are a follower of Jesus, to come and receive the bread, the body of Jesus, receive the cup, either the wine or the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for you so that you could be redeemed. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, this is what we are about. We believe that there really is someone who has come to rescue and repair our world, not just deal with human sin, but to bring us back to God and to bring us back to the garden but a garden city where we will live with Jesus in the new earth as we were designed to live, without the curse, without the enemy. There's coming a day where he will be banished. And if you believe that, then we are inviting you to get into the waters of baptism and repent of sin and place your faith in Jesus. Go under the waters showing that he's washing you clean of your sin, absorbing the curse of sin, and rising up to give you a new identity. We're inviting you today to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then we're going we're gonna to ask you to not come and take this meal, but we will have men and women down front in just a minute that would love to talk with you or pray with you. There's also going to be slides up on the screen that you could pray. These are prayers that might give language to something that, that you're experiencing in your heart right now. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to get in groups today. Come and receive and, and, and name those places where the, the curse is felt. And let's, together, let's encounter the love of God and the salvation of God in those places. Amen? You're invited to come when you're ready.